We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Megan Miskiman and I'm here with Renette Schabert and we are joined by our guest today, Jacqueline Baker. Jacqueline Baker is an associate professor of literature and creative writing and the author of three books, the most recent of which is The Broken Hours, a ghost story about the final days of horror icon H.P. Lovecraft. On today's episode, we will be discussing Jacqueline's love of novels, short stories, screenplays, and creative nonfiction, as well as her upcoming book and some other works in progress. Thank you very much for being with us to here today, Jacqueline. Thanks, thanks. Thanks, Megan. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's cool if I call you Jackie, yeah? That's fine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, awesome. Um, so we always like to start by learning a bit more about what attracted our guests to their fields. Uh, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about what attracted you to writing? Yeah, this is the, this is always a hard question, I find. Um I, I come from a humble background, so I was raised by a single mother, um, so we didn't have a lot of money to spare for, you know, fun things like piano lessons. I know every kid is groaning, thinking about the misery of the piano lessons that they took when they were kids, but things like that for me were um, really attractive. Um, but the thing that I could do that didn't require anything was write. And so I started doing that when I was a kid. And, you know, you just sort of I guess, go in and out of it without any... The thing about writing as an art form is that it's not a discipline. I mean, it is a discipline, um, but it's not a discipline in the same way that you maybe need to take lessons or have a specific kind of technical instruction for it. We all write, um, we all read, and so we kind of find our way through this discipline. I think that's an interesting distinction about it. Um, so I, that's kind of what I did. You know, I, I wrote a little bit and then I'd stop writing for a few years. And then sometime around um, my mid-20s, I found myself in university and uh, there were some creative writing classes available and that's how it started. That's how they always get us, right? In university. In university. Watch yeah. out for university. Yeah, just look out. Yeah, they're looking, they're, they're trying to get us. <laughs> Listen. Yeah, I can relate. I could relate. Um, so in your undergrad, I guess, I guess that's where, that's where they got you. Um, did you have like a, like an aha moment in one of these classes where you were like, man, I, I should probably write forever now. Oh, I think it's the other way around. I think the aha moment is like, aha, this is really hard. <laughs> this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. It's a funny thing when you start to write. Um, it, like I was talking about before with the dis the idea of it being a discipline, we can all write. And so we just write our stories down. And I think at some point for all of us who continue to write, it, we hit a point where we think, no, this is actually a technical skill. And so you start taking stories apart. So you aren't reading just for pleasure anymore. You're reading to figure out how they work. Um, and I think once you hit that point, there's really no going back from, from there. Stories look different to you. You're looking at them in different ways. And so I think for me, that's probably the closest thing to an aha moment is a story isn't, um, no matter how much I love it or, or love the writer who wrote it, it isn't um, a, a thing constructed of concrete. You could go in and make changes and do things differently. And I think once you start looking at a constructed story that way, there's no, there's no going back. You see things differently. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like in my, my degree too, as, as we mentioned mm. earlier in comms, there's a bit of technical writing there too. And that's something that we right. learn is like to deconstruct like writing and what's going on here and why is it being told this way so 
yeah. interesting that it's yeah and well. i think you don't read the same way afterwards either yeah. story and and narrative just becomes a different thing to you yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely um actually speaking of of stories uh you you mentioned to me uh earlier uh, that that stories to you or you you feel that stories are a place of refuge and I I, I really really liked this and the way that that you wrote this and the way that I read this uh, it kind of made my heart drop a little bit so can you expand on that and I guess why you chose those words yeah um, I think that it's just exactly how it has been for me is that stories um, novels short stories um, any kind of narrative really but but really book form I mean for a lot of people it's film and I can understand that appeal as well but for me it has always been books um, it's a place you can disappear into and a place where you can walk around in shoes that aren't yours um, and that can be both a refuge from maybe difficult times in your own life but there's also a kind of expansion of humanity in it the fact that you do get the opportunity to walk around in shoes that are not yours it's the same as writing when we write fiction we're writing from perspectives not our own and it's the same kind of challenge and so actually I had a friend ask me recently um, she lives alone and she said do you, have you found the pandemic really hard I, I live alone mostly um, with a daughter part-time um, and she was saying that she finds it really hard, the isolation in, in during the pandemic, especially living alone. And she said, you don't seem to find it as hard. And so I was thinking about why that is. And I actually think, she, I don't know if she was buying it, but <laughs> I think it's because of the nature of what I do. So if I sit down and write for five to six hours, that's five or six hours where I'm actually in the company of several other people. <laughs> um, and so it does not feel as isolating it's a strange, it sounds strange, but I think that it does actually work that way. Yeah, no, actually, it, it doesn't sound, I mean, it doesn't sound strange to me. I, <laughs> yeah, it's because you're a writer, that's why. <laughs> yeah, and an avid reader. Right. So definitely, like you said earlier about like being able to escape into into those things. And um, it, it's either like you, you read something because you admire um, the story or you admire mm. the protagonist, what have you, um, I find, or you yeah, you, you're just not really enjoying what's going on in your life. So you're going <laughs> to pretend to do something else. Right. And, th and there's a way in there's a way in which even the darkest stories, there's a way in which um, things do have a, a kind of way of working out in the end. Um, Neil Gaiman talks about this when, when he talks about horror um, and why people like horror so much. And he describes it as being able to get off the ghost train that you're on the ride but you know that at some point that particular ride is going to end you can step off it and go back to your life or go back um, and find another story that's true see i always thought that i liked horror and thrillers because it it humbles me to realize that what's going on in my life isn't that bad <laughs> perspective perspective i think that you know the question is always um why women like to read and listen to true crime so much and i wonder if that actually isn't hitting it as well yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. that, or like, like, I guess they always talk about thrill seekers too. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a, there's mm -hmm. probably a portion of people like that, I guess. Yeah, it's not me. It's <laughs> un, that's not me. <laughs> well, cause, cause your, uh, your expertise or your, it seems to be one of your main interests is horror. So, so yeah. what, like, did that just come right out the womb? Like, like, are you... <laughs> Oh, that's a good question. I, I was thinking about this the other day as well, because I do think it's interesting that some people are very drawn to it and other people are completely put off by it. And it seems like there isn't a lot of middle ground. You're either you're either on the ghost train or you're not on the ghost train. And so um, I think that I don't know that it's something I don't think it's nurture. I think there is something in us that is just drawn to 
drawn to the darkness. I don't know, um, just something about a particular personality type that um, enjoys horror and others who are maybe too frightened by it. Maybe that's it. You know, I think that often the people who I talk to who don't watch or read horror say that they have a hard time letting go of it afterwards. So maybe that's the difference that you're either, you know, just enough frightened <laughs> or you're frightened too much. Whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe then it's just time to, time to close the book. <laughs> close the book, lock the door, draw the curtains. Yeah. And have a, um, start sleeping with a baseball bat. Sleep with a baseball bat. <laughs> If you aren't already, you should be sleeping with one. You know. Yeah. If you've read some of the stuff I have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I want to touch on your, uh, uh, your teaching a little mm -hmm. bit. So do you, what, what inspired you, I guess, to, uh, to not only, not only pursue something that, that you love to do, but, but help others pursue it as well. And, and what has, what is teaching, like what's different about teaching versus you know, writing, but, but teaching how to write and things like that. Yeah. yeah. I think there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of reasons and I think the answer is complicated and I'm not sure that I can um, answer it simply, but I would say that um, for me personally, for, for my own benefit, I think that as a writer, you spend so much time sitting by yourself. Um, it is just, a, it's a requirement of the job. You, it requires a lot of time to sit, especially for the writing of novels, and to just figure out what this story is that you're pulling out of thin air. And so I think a lot of writers, not everyone, of course, but a lot of us are inclined to an introversion anyway. So the introversion combined, combined with the requirement of being alone so much does result in quite a lot of isolation. And so the requirement of going out and interacting with other people and not only just other people, but other people who also love writing um, and love story is a really healthy thing. Um, I only started teaching at McEwen, I guess it's been oh, all only it's been 10 years now so um it's no big gone. deal no, just, wait, 10 years. just 10 years that's nothing that's nothing it's gone by in a flash um but i think one of the things for me is that that required interaction has been a really good thing um it's also really super heartening uh, to engage with young writers who lo still love books <laughs> and still love stories um there's always talk there's been talk probably since since the dawn of time about <laughs> the death of the novel. Um, and I don't think this is new to, to the current cultural moment. I think that's, that's a conversation that's been going on since probably the, you know, the rise of the novel. Um, it rose and then immediately started falling off. So I think that talking to young writers and young readers who still love books and are passionate about it and still see the possibility of becoming a writer as a really exciting thing is also really good because the truth of writing is, you know, in addition to sitting um, by yourself for long periods of time, trying to do this really difficult thing um, without somebody standing over your shoulder, helping you do it, you know this yourself from writing, um, is that you, it's easy to get disheartened. And one of the things that I tell my students all the time is that I think ultimately the ability to write well and the, and the potential for publication has less to do with actual talent and much more to do with being in it for the long haul that you're just willing to sit with a thing and keep making it better and making it better and making it better because you can with every draft and with every pass, you can improve it. Um, so that ultimately talent is, is relatively meaningless. You know, we all start at different 
places on the scale. Um, and then your commitment to just sitting with it and, and continuing. Alice Monroe, I think it was, said, um, no, if Flannery O'Connor said that good writing requires a, a certain degree of stupidity uh, that makes you just have to sit and stare at the thing a long time. And I think that that's really accurate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that the talent is almost like the least of their worries. Yeah. Like you'll find inspiration and people can find inspiration from almost you know anything, anywhere, at any time. It's uh, it's the willingness to to stick on with it, and and the same can be said for industries like music, right? Like anything that that takes a lot of determination, like you just have to have that drive in you, um, and I guess like too, like just willingness to to put yourself out there. Absolutely, willingness to put yourself out there is is huge, and um, I I also talk to my students a lot about um, the necessity of being rejected. It will happen for sure to everyone. It's not like you hit it out of the park on your first try and you continue to hit it out of the park every time. Maybe you get really lucky the first time out. And we don't talk nearly enough about luck um, in terms of any of the success in any of the arts. Um, stars have to align in order for things to go very well for us sometimes. And uh, I think that we don't talk nearly enough about that. And so often young writers come into it with a misapprehension of what it's like to publish a book and how easy it is. Um, and also that once you have published a book that it continues to go that way, that's not how it works. It's very, it fluctuates. Um, and so I think that going into it with the right attitude of, I'm doing this for my own reasons and whether I publish right away or not, or whether I publish early and then have you know a dry spell, I'm still going to continue to write is actually the thing that will see people into publication more than anything else. Absolutely. Like you said, like yeah. you have to, it's, it's not like I woke up one day and I wanted to write a book or be a writer. Right. It's like this is something that you've been working on or wanting to do. It's been in the back of your mind for a long time. Yeah. And yeah. you've either like started and maybe pushed aside because you yeah. were worried, right? And That's right. You're and, coming and, back. and novels can take a very long time. You know, we're talking 10, ten years. Sometimes people spend 15 years on a novel. Um, and that just requires a certain kind of determination um, and belief. It's a weird kind of belief. Um, you know, it's kind of an ongoing joke that writers have in equal amounts, um, enormous, um, egotism and enormous insecurity. And I think there's truth in that as well. Like we're all insecure about, is this good enough? And you'll always, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this yourself in your writing, but waves of what, looking at a draft and thinking, this is the best thing I've ever written. And then you put it aside for two hours and come back and go, this is all garbage. What, what was I thinking? And then you come back again and you're like, no, actually I'm a genius. And that's just how it goes. It doesn't, that's not because, um, because we're novice writers. I don't think that ever stops, no matter how many books you publish. I love the way you worded that because you, it couldn't be more true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, that has, to answer your question, that has happened yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Mostly for assignments, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh yes, definitely. Um, yeah, well, you know what? I think this is probably a good time to, to take a short break, um, but don't go too far. When we return, Jacqueline is going to talk to us about her new book, The Broken Hours, so stay tuned. I have Alberta-born Métis artist Cynthia Haymar in the studio today to tell us a little bit about her recent album and music video release. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so my album was released on September 23rd, 2022, and it's called Joint and Marrow. And it was really, uh, the catalyst for it was uh, a song that I wrote uh, for the Bent River 
songwriting competition that was held, I think it was 2021 actually. Um, but it was such a fun process recording with uh, Paul Johnson. He's on the faculty at Grant McEwen. And then also recording with Chris Andrews, who is also um, a member of the faculty here. And um, it was just such a fun experience. We ended up recording a whole album together. So that album is called Joint and Marrow. And it's on all of the things like the Spotify and the iTunes and all that jazz. And um, what I'm really excited about, uh, not that that's not exciting enough, but um, a music video uh, for this tune, Where Your Love Lives, came out on November 18th. And it's um, on my Vivo account, I believe. And we'll have a little link for that um, at the bottom here. All right. Hello. We are back here with Jacqueline Baker, Associate Professor of Literature and Creative Writing and author of The Broken Hours. So Jackie, uh, without giving it away completely, what can you tell us about The Broken Hours? Oh, well, we were just talking about how long it takes to write a book and I published the book 10 years ago. Is it 10 years? No, it's not. It can't be. I'm having a moment right now. It's eight years. It, eight years ago, I published it. So it's been a little while since I've you know, had my head in that space. But um, what can I tell you about it? Well, I can tell you that the inspiration for it came because, you know, as soon as you're finishing a book, you're casting around for the next idea because it's a bad idea. A little bit of advice. It's a bad idea if you're writing a book to wait until you finish that book and send it out into the world to start a new book because... It takes so long to grease the wheels that if you've got, you know, some lines already cast while you're finishing a draft or a manuscript, then once you send that out, you can turn to the next project right away. I find that works better. I used to be the kind of person who would wait, like write one thing, wait, wait, write one thing and wait. And it just takes so long. So I had been thinking about writing a book about Edgar Allan Poe, who I have loved since I was a kid, loved his stories. And I was in a bookstore in Moose Jaw at a writer's festival with a couple of writer friends. And um, it was a secondhand bookstore. And so I was finding all these great books from, about Edgar Allan Poe. And so I was piling them up on the counter. And one of my friends came up to me and said, what's with all the Edgar Allan Poe books? And I said, well, I'm thinking about writing this book, which is a fictionalized account of his life, um, because I've always been interested in him. And they said, you know, there's a movie, a biopic coming out about him next year. Right. So I was thinking, OK, well, that this is what happens, right? It, there's a zeitgeist that we're all tapped into. And so second little bit of advice is if you think you have a good idea, don't wait, like just go run with it right now. Anyway, so put the books back on the shelves. And then we were sitting in this little restaurant in Moose Jaw trying to brainstorm other horror writers I loved. And so I, I, H.P. Lovecraft has always been on my radar, but because for my particular horror tastes, he always leaned a little bit more science fiction than I was interested in. He, I didn't read him a lot. Um, but I thought, well, he's, he's kind of interesting, though, so let's see what I can find out about him. So I just did a quick, like, Wikipedia search. Kids, don't use Wikipedia for your research. Um, just to see a little bit about him. And he had the most fascinating life. Like, his, his life alone was a tragedy. And um, so I thought, well, I'm going to look more into this person. And I did. I started researching him. And uh, it, the, the book, I, when I wrote it, I would go to readings and say, people would say, how long did it take you to write the book? And I was always reluctant to say, because it took six weeks for the first draft, which is absolutely bananas for the first draft of a novel. And I've never written anything that quickly before, and I will never be able to write anything that quickly 
again, I'm sure. Um, but I think it was partly so quick because I had done so much of the research. Um, so I had, it was almost like, it was almost like writing nonfiction because I was pulling in a lot of the truth about the man, um, but then fictionalizing around it. So the, the premise is that this, it's 1930s in Rhode Island. And this man has been down on his luck. His name's Arthur Crandall. And he's looking for a job. He's desperate. He's living away from his family, his wife and his daughter. And so he sees that there's a job available as a personal assistant to a reclusive horror writer. And this is H.P. Lovecraft. So he shows up at the door one day to take the job. And that's where it starts. That is awesome. Um, you mentioned Edgar Allan Poe and my heart fluttered. because yeah, uh, Oh, love, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and H.P. Lovecraft too. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, all that we all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. Mm-hmm. That's one I wrote on my notebook in junior high. Nice. Uh, and I that's used, when he gets us. He gets us in junior high. That's when time. he gets us. Yeah, yeah the emo girls, yeah, the goth girls. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and H.P. Lovecraft, I agree with you on your point that he's a bit sci-fi. Yeah. Um, although I did use my first real paycheck when I turned 16 and got a job uh, to buy uh, the Necronomicon uh, from Chapters at the time it was called right. Chapters Books. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know I was talking with a, a Lovecraft fan. Yes. And okay. that's why I was so excited to to hear more about the right. book. And, yeah. and I, I haven't actually read it, but mm. I will be. <laughs> yeah. Have you, did, have you read much about him biographically? He had, he had the strangest life. So he... Um, was born into a very wealthy aristocratic family um, in Rhode Island and in Providence. And he, um, his, his father was not wealthy. He was from the working class and he was a traveling salesman for a silver company. But his mother came from this aristocratic family. And sometime when Lovecraft was a child, his father became ill. And he was, the, the, the way the story goes is he was on a trip one day and he was in a hotel and one of the other guests reported hearing somebody screaming. And so the hotel staff went to check the room and um, the father was having some kind of mental breakdown. And so he was committed almost immediately to Butler Asylum in Providence, where he sp- spent the rest of his life, as far as I know, except for you know brief visits out. And I think that those didn't go on for very long. Sometime after that, his grandfather lost everything. So they had lived on this really beautiful estate and they had to put that up for sale and um, the grandfather died. So then it was just the mother and the aunts um, and Lovecraft lived with them. Then his mother started having, um, they, she described it as um, seeing visions. So she would see what she called shadow people out of the corners of her eye. Um, and she was then committed to Butler Asylum as well. And so the, some people speculate that it was, I think, syphilis, that the father contracted syphilis, then the mother contracted it from him. And so that's the root of their, their psychological problems. But um, Lovecraft kind of lived this lonely, um, impoverished life. And he always, I read his letters. There's many, many, he was a prolific letter writer, and I, there are many volumes I, uh, when I was doing research, I, I restricted myself to the letters he wrote in the year in which I set the novel so that I wouldn't be casting too far ahead. Um, but, but he, he's, he's kind of misunderstood as a, a reclusive writer. From what I saw, he was actually not any more reclusive than any other writer I know. He was actually, a, um, kept in correspondence with many people. He visited friends. Um, but he was 
he was, I would say he was odd. There was an oddness to him. Um, but you know, when, when you first start, I don't know if this happened to you, but when you first start hearing about him as a writer, there's lots of talk about him being an occultist and, you know, I, none of that was true. He was just an ordinary guy who had some bitter ideas about people, um, and some ugly ideas about people. And, um, that came out in some of his fiction, which, which turned out to be like life changing for some people. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so a fascinating story, a sad story, um, but certainly one that was good for feeding a novel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you, you mentioned uh, something that, that, that piqued my interest too, is when you were researching him, you, you said time and time again, when I researched him, you probably spent so much time researching the guy yeah, just to yeah, make sure probably you, a year. Yeah. I probably spent a year just researching him, um, reading everything I could read, reading all the bio, the many biographies of him, reading all of those, reading the letters that I could get my hands on, um, and then uh, sitting down to write. And I think that is also why the writing itself went quickly because I had already filled the filled the barrel, really, um, and so there was a lot to draw from. Yeah, yeah, you were you were a, a Lovecraft expert, so that's why I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> There are many, I don't know if you've noticed, but Lovecraft, Lovecraft fans are hardcore. Oh, yes. So I will never say I'm an expert. I know a little bit. I knew just enough to write the book and no more. Hopefully no Lovecraft uh, fans listen to this podcast <laughs> oh. and, and get upset They're, called, they're on the phone right now. Are the, is the phone, is the switchboard lighting up? Um, I know number one. Yeah. <laughs> there were many times when I was drafting the book that I thought, I don't know the answer to this thing that I'm trying to write right now. And oh my God, they're going to come and set my house on fire because they're so, <laughs> they love him. Yes. And so they're very enthusiastic fans. And so I was always a little bit anxious about getting it right. You know, not only for that, I mean, I'm kind of joking about that, but also I did want to get it right. Um, and I think that writing about um, an actual historical figure was challenging in ways that it's not challenging when you're writing pure fiction because I did feel an obligation and I did feel kind of haunted by the man himself as I was writing because I kept trying to be true to the, the person I actually found in the letters. And um, yeah, I, so I, I sympathize with, with biographers because I think it must be incredibly challenging to try and do the best um, but most honest job by the subjects that you're writing about. That's something I actually hadn't considered that actually it makes so much sense when you say it out loud the the amount of just i don't, I don't know if worry is the, is the correct word or term to use here but just making sure that you are you know honoring yeah. the person yeah, honoring. but also yeah but also yeah. like still being able to be creative with your own writing yourself right, right? that's yep. the tricky part about creative nonfiction. yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. Yeah. um i have a question actually about your about your book specifically you mentioned um, about the the writing assistant or the assistant to a Lovecraft yeah. being the intro of your book. Right. So that part that's completely that's fabricated. That's com so, so that's such a cool aspect. Yeah. Though. Well, I mean, it's a bit of a cheat, is what it was, because I I kept thinking, how can I write this life? And I don't want to fictionalize the man. You know, there's and there's lots. There's a. An, an, incredibly um, vast amount of fictionalized Lovecraft, you know, Lovecraft universe literature. Um, and I didn't want to do that. Uh, so I wanted to be able to come into his life, but to be able to fictionalize the story. And so he had to be in the background. Um, and I don't want to say too much about it because there is a turn in the novel and I don't want to give that turn away. But um, the assistant is pure fabrication. So when I was reading his letters, he um, 
so it was 1936 that the book was set, and I think by 1938 he was dead. Lovecraft died in 1938, and so there was a period of time um, when he was quite ill. And so I was reading the letters, I thought, okay, so here is a great um, tract of time in which he, his correspondence has fallen off. Like, I think there was a three-week period where he didn't write any letters at all, and I thought, aha, okay, so here is a place where I can enter because there aren't letters saying, you know, on Wednesday I fed the cats, and then I went down to the, there was not, nobody wrote down what he was doing those days, and I thought, okay, so if I'm going to take um, liberties in entering this person's life, I would at least like to do that as authentically as I can. And so I will set the entire novel within that three-week period, and I'll write it from the perspective of this personal assistant, Arthur Crandall, rather than from the perspective of Lovecraft himself, which would have been weird to me, and I think I can't say anymore because I'm about to give away the entire novel. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it, don't do it. I'm going to go buy it right after this. <laughs> no, but that. But I, I, I guess like that to me is such a such a brilliant like way to like you said honor their story without being too you know in in the spotlight with using them as the protagonist right you have an external character that you can sort of act as like a fly on the wall mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. yeah um, it didn't feel brilliant at the time i mean at the <laughs> at the time when you're drafting you're always thinking is this right is should i be doing this does this even you know that's sort of the way it feels until it's done and then I try not to look back at it too much because I'll always see the things that I wish I had done differently. Absolutely. Well, that's the ego balance that yeah, you were talking about earlier, right? Exactly. You're like, am I allowed to be proud of myself right, right. now? No, right. I am no. not. <laughs> Find all the flaws. <laughs> no, I'm a terrible, <laughs> terrible writer and I should just burn this all. <laughs> oh, you heard me this morning. Yeah. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> just three times a week for me, you know? <laughs> Oh, uh, that's, that's, that's amazing. I, thank you so much for, for telling us all that about, about the broken hours. I will stop you now because, okay, um, cause I'll just keep talking. No, and, and we like, don't we, even buy it. No, we want everyone to, to go out and who's interested to go out and read it themselves mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, me included. So, um, while we're on the topic though, mm -hmm. uh, are there any other, you know, maybe works in progress or even works that you've done since um, that you'd like to sort of touch on or talk mm. more about? Well, I'm in the middle of a bunch of projects, actually. And I, as I said before, I, when I started out writing, I was very much a, okay, I have this one project and I will only look at this one project and I won't think about any other project until this project is done and gone. Um, and then I realized how slow that was going to be. And so since The Broken Hours, actually, um, and that the, the publishing of The Broken Hours actually coincides pretty closely with my time starting to teach at McEwen. So my time has been uh, less um, available for, for just writing. And so I've tried to find ways in which I can maximize the time that I do have. And so one of those ways is to have many proje projects going at once. And so you kind of, as I described it to someone, you throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. And so last year, that's what I did. And it just so happened that several of them stuck. And so now what I'm doing is trying to navigate between several ongoing projects. So I've got uh, two novels in draft form. Um, and I'm, I'm currently, that's my focus. I'm moving between those two things. Um, I've got a screenplay that is out um, with a producer. Um, and I've got another screenplay that's currently sitting with my agent waiting for some feedback. And then I'll, you know, revise it and revise it and revise it. Um, and then I've got a nonfiction project that I've been working on a little bit. So that's sort of finding its way in between the two novels right now. Oh, so no big, you're not really no big doing deal. anything, are you? No, yeah. I'm writing a novel right now as we're talking. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> I 
That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. I, interesting to me, you mentioned the screenplays um, and agents. Uh, so that's that's something, hey? Mm. Like you when, when you first were writing this book or at least thinking about writing your book, you know, let's go back to when you had your pile of Edgar Allan Poe books mm. on the table. Yeah. Is that even something that you were thinking of? Like, I got to get an agent. I got to get right. a publisher. Like, yeah, yeah. That's that's the that's the question that always comes up, especially when we're um, when new writers are, are wondering how they go about it. So, the Broken Hours wasn't my first book. I had a novel before that and a collection of short stories before that. The the short stories were my first book, and I wrote those as a student. Most of them, um, some of them as an undergrad, and some of them in the graduate program at the University of Alberta, uh, and then that turned into my first book. But again, like, I just want to go back to to that idea of, of good fortune. Um, m- many people write a, a collection of short stories that is that is very good. And I just happened to, you know, have a, an advisor, it was Greg Hollingshead at the time, a Canadian novelist, who had an agent and he thought the stories were pretty good, so he sent them to his agent. And the agent happened to think of a publisher that she thought would really like them. And so it, that first book happened very easily for me. And that doesn't mean anything except, as I said before, it, it was just good fortune. Um, it doesn't mean that that book was any better than, you know, any of the many other books that were pu- that were published or that somebody wrote that year. It's just that sometimes things happen to align and sometimes they don't. And sometimes uh, your book comes out um, with a, and a, the jury that's looking at awards that year uh, doesn't happen to align. Like it, it's ultimately all of that stuff I, I keep trying to say it, is relatively meaningless as long as we're still able to get our books out into the world. So the question of agents and publishers, I mean, I guess we all write because we want to be read. Um, And I try to make that distinction between journaling, which is something valuable that we do for ourselves, and then writing for an audience, which is what we are talking about today. So if we're writing for an audience, we want that to be read. And uh, there is kind of a misapprehension about the way that happens, um, that you have to have an agent. Uh, that's not necessarily true. I think you would need an agent if you're trying to access markets that you don't have access to yourself. So foreign markets, um, uh, Hollywood, if you're writing a screenplay, like I don't have those contacts myself. So I need somebody who will do that work for me. Um, and also there's the question of, you know, the, back to that introversion, extroversion again. Most writers tend to lean a little bit more towards introversion. Agents are, are not introverts. They're the, they do the extroversion. And so they're valuable in that way. But do you need an agent to publish a book? You don't need an agent to publish a book. You can send your manuscript out to publishers yourself. Um, the process might be a little bit slower. Uh, and there are some publishers who say that they are not accepting new manuscripts at the time uh, unless they're agented. But there are many, many ways of getting your book out into the world that don't require an agent necessarily. My agent has been very useful to me, um, but but it's not a requirement. Well, it's kind of like you said too, like with yourself, right right place, right time, yeah. which I like to call the Forrest Gump effect. Right. <laughs> I, I never saw Forrest Gump. Oh, I might be the last person in the world. I just admitted it on on public radio. Oh, my goodness. It's fine. Listen, I'm going to say right now, we all forgive you, but you got to go watch it this weekend. Really? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I think it was a life changing. Is it too late? Have I missed? I think I've missed the boat. You know, (laughs) you may have missed the boat. But you haven't missed the uh, the the wonderful, you know, okay. themes and okay. and motifs that right. are involved in right. the story itself. Okay. It's it's a pretty good one, okay. I would say. It's definitely not my favorite, but okay. I have nothing against it. It's just- <laughs> 
just didn't happen for me. Just Megan. Did, like didn't you happen. said, the stars didn't align. Stars did not align. Uh, obviously, you've been on to bigger and better things. If I wasn't <laughs> sitting watching Forrest Gump, I could be published. You would have, so. so many novels you would have written by now. <laughs> See? I don't know what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> Thank you. I, I needed this today. Um, oh, well, that's that's really good advice, though. I I, I always, especially in, in my degree too, in comms, you've got a mix of, of PR and writers, yeah. right? So you've got people who want to push that sort of creative button, but then they are also looking to make, I guess, in quotations, an honest living. Right. And they're they're kind of scared to take that risk and just do um, creative writing or what have you. Um, and they always talk about publishers and, and self-publish and, oh, well, you're not, don't self-publish or don't, you know, so it's, it's 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 an interesting topic for me and yeah, to hear it, from you absolutely. what you Absolutely. And it is complicated. You know, the, the model that we're talking about is the traditional model of going to um, an agent or even an unagented traditional publisher. But um, there used to be a lot of um, uh, judgment against self-publishing. But I think that market has changed pretty dramatically um, in, in, in terms of indie publishing now. So there are lots of new publishing houses that are using an innovative models of publishing. Um, that aren't the traditional models. And so it might have a thread of self-publishing in it, but it is actually quite a different thing. Um, self-publishing, the old traditional model of self-publishing is kind of like a vanity press where uh, there are so-called publishers out there, you know, air quotes publishers who will ask for you to pay for your own publication, but they, they don't market the book in any way. And so that's definitely something that's not useful to us as writers because it's not getting the book into the hands of readers. Um, but there are all kinds of other options now and um, self-publishing isn't what it used to be either. No, and, and it's interesting that you brought up the indie market because that's one that, that I think of too. And no. in terms of like, especially when I compare it to film, like you look at all these indie films, mm. um, it's it's a very similar similar way. Like you have a, a, a couple of, of small town, you know, heroes, I like to call them, who are like, I like your idea, let's let's make it into a, a Netflix film or a, or a little indie movie, let's yeah. put it in the TIFF or something, right? Exactly. And it's it's very comparable with, with this model that you're speaking of with the indie um, sort of underground mm. book publishing mm. groups yeah. or yeah, whatever. Yeah, it is you. changing. And I think it it's, is. it's a good thing that it's changing. Absolutely. It's making it more accessible, I mm -hmm. think, um, because like even when you said screenplay, you know, your head goes to, your brain goes to Hollywood. Yeah. Your, your brain goes to you right, know. and in fact, it's it's so much more than that, right? It but is. it is limited, and it's also allowing for a much more diversity in what we're publishing and and who we're publishing. And so, I think I think the movement is a good one. Absolutely, I think there's I think there's room in the publishing world for all kinds of models, and we should, you know, be looking for that kind of multiplicity rather than reducing the options. Absolutely, absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, I, that's pretty much all I have, Jackie. Okay. I before we go, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to? on anything else you'd like to add that maybe we we didn't talk about or I don't think so I think I, I just always like to say that you know to, to drive that point home again about um, you know I think about I always think now about writers sitting out there you know struggling or feeling frustrated with where they're at or frustrated with their manuscript and just that it's important to stick with it and it, it isn't necessarily easy if it were easy then everybody would be doing it um you know it, think to yourself how many times you've heard somebody say they want to write x book lots of people want to write books but not everybody does write books because it is hard and because it takes a long time and it takes a kind of discipline and commitment that's going to see you through um self-doubt um or rejection and so i always just want to remind people that 
um, fortune comes in waves. And as long as you're sitting down and doing the work and you're prepared for maybe when fortune does swing your way, that's really what matters. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you very much yeah, for you're that. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think that this podcast can change the world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Megan Miskiman and Renette Schabert. Music is by Dylan Cave with sound design and editing by Renette Schabert. Research, copy editing, and scripting are by Megan Miskiman. Our executive producer is Ray Barry.